At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. My industry failed the country in Iraq. I basically say this about the Trump era. I don't know if we're doing it right. We're going to know in five years whether we did it right. And I don't want this to be my Iraq war. And I know if we blow this one, our industry's in deep trouble. That's Chuck Todd. He's the host of Meet the Press on NBC and of MTP Daily on MSNBC. He's also the political director for NBC News. I spoke with him live on stage at the Lincoln Theater in Washington, D.C., about keeping the press free, being insulted by the president on Twitter, and whether the midterms were truly a blue wave. Plus, who should run in 2020? That's coming up. Stay tuned. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone to listen to my new podcast, co-hosted by the former New Jersey Attorney General and my friend, Ann Milgram. It's called Cafe Insider. Every week, we break down the headlines and take stock of what's happening. A new episode is available now. We talk all about Mueller, Whitaker, the sealed indictment against Julian Assange, and the criminal justice reform bill. You can listen to part one of that episode in your Stay Tuned feed. To listen to part two, go to cafe.com slash insider and sign up. Members of Cafe Insider will get access to full episodes and a weekly newsletter. I'll also send members text alerts with my thoughts on breaking news and host quarterly conference calls. So go to cafe.com slash insider and become a member. One more note. If you're in L.A. on November 29th, come see me live in conversation with actor and Oscar-nominated writer Kumail Nanjiani. You can buy tickets for that show at cafe.com slash tour. So one last thing. We're putting the show out a day early this week because this Thursday is Thanksgiving. I think maybe the best holiday of the year. It's a time where you take a moment to give thanks for what you have. And we have so much in this country. I know I'm thankful for all of you. So happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy it with your family. Eat too much food. Watch too many movies. See too much football. And we'll be back here next week. And now, my live show with Chuck Todd from Washington, D.C. Hey, everybody. How are you? Um, it's rain. I know it's raining, which is terrible, and I'm sorry that you had to travel through the rain, but you know what that means, the fact that it's raining, it means that Donald Trump ain't here. <laughs> Thank you for coming. We have a great show. Uh, we have a great guest. Chuck Todd is here. Um, We have a great sponsor, Showtime. 
which is very cool for me, uh, and maybe some of you will appreciate this, especially if you have strict immigrant parents. My brother and I weren't allowed to watch Showtime until we were married, so <laughs> it's, very, it's very great that they're a gracious sponsor of the show. I know that there are different modes of transportation. Uh, how many of you here came by Metro? Uh, how many came by Caravan? Uh, and, and how many of you just rode in in a blue wave? <laughs> I know how to pander. So I think we'll talk with Chuck about this, but it seems that there was a blue wave. It took a little longer to appreciate. Last I heard, um, and my information is uh, you know, a couple of hours old, uh, Democrats won back 35 seats. Could go up as high as 39. Um, it's amazing to be in the Lincoln Theater. I'm overwhelmed and humbled by the success of the podcast. So tonight's show, I said, has a sponsor, Showtime. And in particular, its documentary series called Enemies, The President, Justice, and the FBI. It's a new four-part documentary series from Academy Award-winning filmmaker Alex Gibney. He's the man behind Going Clear and so many other things that you've seen. But most importantly, obviously, he was also a guest on Stay Tuned. The series covers the ongoing power struggle between the president and the FBI. For example, who enforces the law when the president is accused of breaking it. Very timely stuff. Enemies, the documentary, moves from Watergate to Iran-Contra to Whitewater and even touches on the Russian investigation unfolding today under Trump. So it's clear that history has a way of repeating itself and this series on Showtime examines those connections. And another bonus, I'm actually in it. Uh, <laughs> And, and I, you might imagine, I have a lot to say about protecting the integrity of our institutions and my own interesting departure from public service. So it's called Enemies, the President, Justice, and the FBI. It starts streaming this Sunday only on Showtime, so you should watch that. Uh, now let's get to your questions. This one comes from Chris in Baltimore. Uh, hi, Preet. You talk a lot about criminal justice reform. Will you share your thoughts about the merits of the First Step Act making its way through Congress. So you might have read, sort of interestingly, in the last week, after a long, a long period of time where it seems no one can agree on anything, there's no bipartisanship, that there seems to be a little bit of a break in the armor of that tribalism and an issue that's near and dear to my heart and to a lot of prosecutors you might not expect who were tough on crime when it was appropriate, but also think that in some ways we've gone too far and there are inequities in the system and we don't take care to make sure that people who go to prison and fulfill their sentence and their obligation, are not integrated back into society. You've, if you're a, a diligent listener to the show, you know that I've talked all the time about uh, the initiative in Florida, which passed by 64, 65% to reenfranchise felons. <clears throat> and, and I think it's especially important, not just for people who are at the ACLU and people who are in the criminal defense bar to stand up for criminal justice reform, but also for people who used to be on the other side. And I consider myself to be one of those people. So the bill that's making its way through, I feel very positive about. I don't know what the ultimate form will take. If I were to prognosticate on what will happen, I think there's a decent chance that 
Democrats will decide, and there's always some danger in this, but I get it, and maybe it's the right thing to do, the Democrats will decide, well, we shouldn't compromise so much on the things that we want to improve criminal justice because in a couple of short months, we'll have the majority. And maybe we can get some more concessions on some of the things that we think are important. But in the basic form that I've seen so far, I'll make a couple of comments. There's one provision that seeks to undo what I think is a, is a dramatic unfairness that federal prosecutors were, were fairly required to pursue, which required that if you committed certain kinds of crimes carrying a, a firearm or using or displaying a firearm and you did it successively, then you had a consecutive sentence. And depending on the circumstances, it could be seven years and the, the second offense, 25 years, and the third offense, 25 years, all consecutive. So you could have somebody who committed three crimes in an evening, rob three bodegas, and you're looking at 75 or 82 years in prison, even if you did it all in an evening. And the intent of Congress seems clear that the reason you have a higher penalty the second time is because you did the crime the first time, and you got punished for it, and you didn't learn your lesson, and you went back out and did it again. But that's not how the court interpreted it when it was challenged in the case, I think the opinion was written by Justice Scalia some years ago, he said prosecutors are able to charge uh, in a way that causes consecutive sentences, even if you did it all in the course of one crime spree, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, and I think was very tough and overly tough, and it looks like that will be remedied in this bill if it passes. The second thing, which is a small point, but one that I've cared about, about reintegration of people who have paid their debt to become voters, to become employed, to become part of society again and stop the cycle of violence. The draft that I saw suggests that there's a provision that requires uh, the federal jurisdiction to give every departing inmate, you know, former incarcerated person, an ID. And you might not think that's not a big deal, but if you talk to people who care about these issues, you realize that the most important thing is a simple thing. According to the president, you need an ID to, to buy cereal, <laughs> but this is not what I'm talking about. It's important to find employment. It's important to get benefits. It's important to show who you are. And lots of people are being released from incarceration and they had no way to prove who they are, which is odd and ridiculous when you consider that certainly the federal government in the Bureau of Prisons, the BOP, knew exactly who you are and kept very close track. And it's something that I think would cost between eight or $12 per released inmate. It's one of those things that's a small investment, it makes a huge difference. It's absurd that we haven't had it so far. So I think we should be encouraged. If this goes forward, I think it's a good thing for everybody and everyone should congratulate both Democrats and Republicans who are supportive. This comes from no name. So I presume it's Julian Assange. Uh, this person says, listen to every single episode for a new set of parents, what does this experienced parent have to offer for advice? Yes, you mean me. I have no idea. The, the only advice I would give is to make sure that your kids are good. There's a lot of competition in the world and a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to explain how you get ahead of other people uh, and how you beat other people. Competition is good. I'm one of the most competitive people you've ever met in your life. My parents taught me to both be competitive but also to treat people well. And I think we have you know, too many folks who are trying to grab what they think is theirs as opposed to also being generous. So 
we spend more time on generosity and less time on taking, and I think that would be better for everybody. One of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth. But most of us don't do it properly. Quip is here to help. Quip is a better electric toothbrush designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. We're supposed to brush our teeth for a full two minutes. But who does that? This ad is 60 seconds long. So you could use this ad as a guide. Listen once, brush your bottom teeth. Start the ad over, brush your top teeth. Or you could just get Quip. Quip has a built-in two-minute timer. It pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping to guide a full and even clean. Think about your toothbrush right now. Picture the bristles. Odds are they're old and beaten up. With Quip, brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. This isn't like the electric toothbrushes I grew up with, with a huge, bulky charger hogging that one bathroom outlet. Not Quip. Quip runs for three months on one charge. Quip helps you clean your teeth right. The right bristles, the right timing. That's why I love Quip, and why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash preet right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash preet. After the tension and drama of the midterms, I'm craving routine, sanity, and healthy cooking. Most nights, however, there's just no time to cook. So many adverbs to do battle with, so many book revisions to procrastinate on, it's tempting to get takeout or graze on junk food. But instead, you can knock out a delicious, healthy meal in just 20 minutes with a new quick and easy meal plan from Sunbasket. Sunbasket's meal kits always make it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. You get pre-measured, easy-to-prep ingredients and organic produce delivered to your door, now with 10- and 15-minute recipes. Dishes like super-fast Thai turkey lettuce cups or simple sausage tacos with bell pepper, chili salsa, and queso fresco. Sunbasket helps you eat your kind of healthy with options like paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, and more. Extra handy if you have relatives coming into town for the holidays, who maybe eat differently from your normal routine. Go to sunbasket.com slash preet today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash preet to get $35 off your order today. sunbasket.com slash preet. All right, without further ado, he's getting antsy back there, I'm sure. Uh, we have an amazing guest tonight, and I think particularly appropriate given how much people are talking about politics and government and Congress and the president. He's covered every major thing you can imagine in American politics over the last, I don't know, 400 years. He is most famously, as you know, the host of NBC's Meet the Press. He's also the host, because that wasn't enough for him, he's the host of Meet the Press Daily, MTP Daily on MSNBC. He's a political director for NBC News. He's a former NBC chief White House correspondent. He's an Emmy award-winning reporter. He's won the First Amendment Service Award. He's an author. Um, he knows so much about so many things. We'll probably take this show, I don't know, nine or ten hours. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Chuck Todd.
I have to say, this is like, you're a rock star, man. I mean, you've got a sold-out auditorium. You've got handlers. He's got groupies in the back. This is, uh, I, man, Trump has created quite the universe for us, hasn't he? Hi, Chuck. <laughs> Hi, Preet. Um, so, where should we, so why don't we start with this? Blue Wave? Elise Jordan, who is on MSNBC uh, as, an, as a regular analyst, I'm going to give her credit for this. She called it a blue tornado. <laughs> and I thought it was brilliant because in spots, it was. In suburban America, this was a wave up and down the ballot. It's not just congressional races. It is local city council. It's state reps. It's all that. But it was in pockets, right? It was a series of blue tornadoes. Um, that basically hit suburban America, whether it was in Virginia Beach, Oklahoma City, Seattle, Washington, Orange County, uh, California, Miami, where I grew I mean, if there was a suburb in America that was, had a college-educated electorate over the national average, I think we're down to something like three or four seats total where Republicans are, are still holding seats that are above, that, above the national average on, on education. So the it's somewhat realignment. It's not a full wave. I, I struggle calling this a democratic wave when they lose Ohio governor, lose Iowa governor, don't win Indiana, don't win Missouri. Previous waves that I've covered included, you know, where you have Democrats winning in Republican territory or the Republicans winning in Democratic territory. In this case, it wasn't fully that. And that's the other reason why this wasn't a full-fledged wave is the other unique description of most political waves is one party's up, and the other party's demoralized. In this case, the Republicans weren't demoralized. They got out too, but the blue tornadoes in the suburbs helped create, I think, at least on the House side, the feel of a wave that I think is more durable, which is why I think it's a realignment. I mean, not only were they not demoralized in the sense, but their leader, who I believe to be Donald Trump, declared victory. He did. I think he's... How, how inconsistent with reality... Is that he was going to declare victory? victory under any circumstance. Right. I mean, he's, it's his great gift. <laughs> no, I, you know, it's a gift. I mean, he's, it's a, it's a two-dimensional facade, and he'll swear it's a three-dimensional building, you know, and he'll sell it to you that way. But you got to give him credit. He got his people out. He did something that Obama couldn't do in two midterms. He got his people out. Do you think, and people have talked about this back and forth, and I don't know if your view changed from the time of the hearing to the election mm -hmm. to now, some days later, when you've had a chance to look at the returns and the exit polls, the Kavanaugh hearing, politically, and I obviously mm -hmm. people care about it because it's the court and it's life tenure, yes. but as a political matter, that horrifying train wreck of a hearing, the second hearing, helped whom? By the way, I thought the first hearing was also, I know it was, didn't have the loud, but... There was a, it was a poor excuse for a set of questions, but we can, I agree. I, I'm sorry. I mean, I just, I, I and it, it was very frustrating. I, I just, as somebody who does ask questions for a living, to see how unprepared United States senators are to ask basic questions and follow-ups is, is very frustrating. It, I, I could, as someone who also asks questions for yeah. a living, I agree. Yeah, you come out of your skin about it. You just, yeah. you get so... Um, Claire McCaskill will tell you point blank the only reason she lost is Brett Kavanaugh. 
I don't know if that's true. Right. I have a theory that what Kavanaugh did was accelerate Republican interest in the election two weeks earlier than it already would have been. What Kavanaugh did, the caravan continued, right, in, in, as far as Trump's use of it as a rallying cry. I have no doubt. You know, what Kavanaugh did do was unite the party in a way that they hadn't been united in a long time, right? And you have Lindsey Graham, you had, you had rank-and-file Republicans upset at how Kavanaugh was treated, and so that did sort of unify official Washington's um, Republican Party a little bit. But I'm not of the, I believe that this, this, the same quote enthusiasm, that I don't think Kavanaugh had the impact, because I, I think these voters were coming out anyway. But, I just think it sped up their, it, it just, they popped in the polls sooner than it would have popped. Right. It would have been two weeks later. Although, so let me ask you one counterfactual question. Mm-hmm. It seems like Republicans were sort of demoralized going into the midterms and then the Kavanaugh thing happened. Do you think that the world would be different in connection with the blue wave or the blue tornadoes or tsunamis, whatever yeah, weather pattern bad we're, weather we're, ta- yeah, we're talking yeah. about? If Kavanaugh had been defeated or was forced to withdraw, mm-hmm. my sort of non-political expertise thought is that would have turned out Republicans and conservatives in much higher numbers out of mm-hmm. anger and would have depressed progressives and Democrats a little bit because they a little bit got what they wanted. Is that, mm. is that stupid? So there, here's the thing. I, it's a very logical thought because if you actually go back to 2016, I've always believed if you just changed one fact in 2016, if you went back in the DeLorean um, <laughs> and, and, you, it, and you kept Ant, – and Antonin Scalia lived and he was alive on Election Day 2016, yeah. Trump doesn't win. I, I, I believe it's the only thing that mattered. Because the courts the matter so much. Courts mattered so much. It was the easy way to get your hold-your-nose Republican voter right. for, for, for Trump. I start with that premise to say this. So I understand why you believe that. I didn't talk to a single Republican strategist who thought who every Republican that was in the field said if they gave up on Kavanaugh over this, it would have demoralized the Trump base because right. you didn't fight. The... What Trump has conditioned his base to embrace is the fight. If the fight's with the press or the fight's with the Democrats or the fight's with France or the fight's with, you know, the Mexicans, it's the fight. Right. I'm like, what do, you know, I... Well, it's funny because his slogan is winning, right? It's winning. It's actually not. It's about fighting. It's about fighting. And I think that, so that's why I actually do buy the idea that Kavanaugh actually would have demoralized. Had they made, had, and let's be realistic, Kavanaugh was hours from withdrawing. Not I mean, days, at lunch, at hours. Lunch, at lunch, do you believe that to be true? Yes. Do oh. You, do you know that from people? There was, yeah, there was talk. There was some people. There was talk. That sounds there like. There were some people trying to get, people hey, say. you should. I know, right. <laughs> you know, in the Trump era, you can get away told. with anything. I've been told, people say. <laughs> These statements are, they're not factually untrue. Um, <laughs> but there was preparation, and there was people saying, you know, you got to figure out how to get out of this. It was sort of like, how are you going to get out of this? Yeah. And then, and, and Trump was ready to give up on him because he didn't, he thought, oh, the guy didn't fight, right? He hated the Fox interview, and he thought he just rolled over when, when he did the Fox interview. So, Trump was ready to pull the plug on him. He's like, well, the guy, I'm, why should I fight harder than he fights? Right. Look, Trump, and that message got to Kavanaugh, which is why Kavanaugh did what he did. No, I think that's right. Look, 
Trump brought a lot of lawsuits before he became president, and he didn't win them. That didn't matter. It's about making the point that if you cross me, I will sue you, I will mock you, I will ridicule you. He doesn't you, care. I will humiliate you, and I've still won. He doesn't care if CNN wins the lawsuit against right. him. That's the point. He got him to sue. He already won. I think that this is the asymmetrical warfare of Trump sometimes that we don't. Everything for him is buying time. That's what, in, in some ways, too. And that's what the lawsuits do. He knows they're frivolous, but that's one more day that you have to deal with a frivolous lawsuit, and he's bought time. Right. But in some ways, so the a criticism, I think, generally of people and politicians. And in my view, specifically so a, a, of Trump... You're a criticism generally of people. Of I people. like this. Of all yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, of all people. I mean, not these people. Right. <laughs> no, but the general problem, ourselves included, we don't think in the long term, right? Yeah. You don't plan. Everyone wants immediate gratification, which is not normally the key to the success. But the weird thing is, based on what you're saying and how Trump has been successful, that the ordinary criticism of a human being like Donald Trump is he only cares about today. And because he only cares about today... He makes decisions that are bad in the medium term and in the long term. So he makes bad personnel decisions. He makes statements that he's going to have to regret later. Take the but Fed. But it works Take for the him. Fed. Right. Like, that's a whole. He's mad at the Fed for raising rates because right. the Fed is worried about the long-term uh, economic health of the country. And he's thinking, no, 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 no. I need stimulus now. I need easy money now. Right. I want the stock market to go up now while I'm president. Right. So but the, the yeah. question is, is he then turning sort of leadership psychology on its head by showing you can be successful by saying, screw the long term, only think about the immediate term. There's a response to that, which is, it's good for no one but him, perhaps. But is there something to be said for how he's changing the way that other politicians, viewing his success, that's the danger to me, I think, right. viewing his success, say, well, that I should be like him. Well, that, that's my great fear, is that he's changing how to succeed in politics, right? I spent my whole adult life analyzing politics and presidential candidates from the prism of who can win the middle, who's going to be the most appealing to the middle, whatever the middle is defined in any election, but there's always a middle. This is about animating your base and forcing the middle to pick a side. So he has gone down that road, and now you are watching copycat candidates who feel as if there's some candidates who decide, okay, I've got to appeal to this Trump base, so I'm going to curse. Right. Right. Like that, Lindsey Graham's been doing that, right? He'll say he has dropped the S bomb on TV. He said F you on my air. There is an interest. I do think Trump is changing at least the tone on how people talk right. to each but, other in politics. But it doesn't always fit those other people. I agree. Like yeah. when Marco Rubio tried it, it, yeah. it, it <laughs> you know, it didn't go so well. But Frankly, he, and. It was unbecoming on Joe Biden. Remember when Joe Biden said, ah, I'll take him out and knock him out. And, you know, on one hand, you're like, <laughs> it, it just, that's not who you are. So he's brought this pugilism to politics. And there is a group of candidates that are trying to copycat him. I, you know, I think that was, that is the concern of a bunch of us. So what if, what if Democrats say, well, if you can't beat him, join him? Look, I, I had a, a really close somebody really close to me who's been in, uh, active in politics for a long time on the Democratic side, who said to me, if the new way, if you have to sort of, you have to sort of wink, lie now in order to win, succeed in politics, that you have to use his tactic, hey, just tell them what they want to hear. That's not the politics I want to be involved in. Like, you know, Trump has a very cynical view of how politics works. 
He thinks all politics is the machine politics of the 50s and 60s. How New York New York was a corrupt place in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. He thinks the same, by the way. And he about thinks it's everything. exactly that. Right, everything's about that way. law enforcement. You know, you name it. He thinks that. But this idea that his view of what a team is and what loyalty is is interesting, right? He doesn't view institutions for what they are and what they're supposed to offer, whether it's the media mm-hmm. or a court or a U.S. attorney or the Justice Department or the FBI. And I, I feel like you, I think you wrote once about an exchange you had with him that made it clear that he sort of thought you were on his team oh. because he used to work at NBC and they made a lot of money for NBC. And he's like, look, I helped pay your salary for a long time, Chuck. So how dare you say anything about me? So Correct? in 2000, you know, it, it's funny. Savannah Guthrie <laughs> and I used to we had a cable show together for a while when we were in the White House. And during the 2010 and 2011 flirtations that he made thinking about running for president, he'd call us a lot after our show and say, how come you don't take my candidacy seriously? How come you don't believe? And, I, you know, and we'd have these, and we'd put them on mute, and we'd sit there and go, <laughs> we'd be on the phone with him 30 minutes, and we'd look at each other. Doesn't he have other stuff to do? Like, why is he... I had time, that feeling, too. At the time, we're like, we're a couple of 9 a.m. cable hosts. No offense to anybody at 9 a.m. on cable. But we're sitting there going, what does he care so much about, you know, about this? You know where this all comes from? When you realize who his teacher was... Mm-hmm. then you know why he's skeptical of the rule of law. And you know who his teacher was. It was Roy Cohn. Yeah, but why did he choose that teacher? Roy Marcus Cohn is the single most, other than his father, Roy Cohn is the single most influential teacher in the life of Donald Trump. But he the, chose the, that teacher. I would, I, I would say he's actually the, the man who, if, if you were to put it in modern terms, the guy who created the Donald Trump algorithm is Roy Cohn. Look at his own experience in the Rosenberg trial. Yeah. All right. He saw the government rig evidence because they couldn't use specific evidence because it was going to show the Soviets how they were spying, how they were discovering how the Rosenbergs were doing this. So he and the judge in the process, you know, these, he tells Trump these stories about how this is the way the justice system worked in the 50s and in the 60s. And, and then Trump just says oh, it works that way all the time. So that's Trump's whole experience of how the rule of law works in the government and how a Justice Department works in government is through the teachings of Roy Cohn. So, of course, he's going to think it's all corrupt. Right, but you don't mean to suggest that that was a passive thing. He chose to seek out people like Roy Cohn and later people like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen. He doesn't seek out the goody-two-shoes, does he? No, 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 no. They all seem to find each other. It is interesting. You know, the story of, of Trump and Cohn, they meet at... It wasn't the 21 Club. It was another club in, in one of those restaurant clubs that were popular in the early 70s. And he's complaining, and he, and, and, and he meets Cone. And he wanted to meet Cone. I mean, he wanted to meet him. And he tells Cone about his case, and he says, you know, my dad and I have these Wall Street lawyers who are just telling us to settle. Just hurry up and get out of this. You don't want it. And, and Cone gave him the magic words, never settle. And from then on, Trump's never settled. To understand him truly is you have to understand Roy Cohn. Yes. Let's talk about the press uh, and its role and your role in it. So you do this show, meet the press. I'm usually sleepy-eyed when I do it. Um, all right. Well, all right. <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> then, we'll get, then we'll get to meet the press. What is it like to be insulted 
on Twitter <laughs> and otherwise repeatedly by the President of the United States of America called... By the way, you got up kind of light. Sleepy eyes is not so bad. He called you an SOB once. The SOB was a tough one. Okay. And it was because it was my daughter who told me about it first. And she's 14, right? It, was, it yeah, popped so up how, on so social media. You, so how do you, so how do you deal was, with that? that I, was, I was pissed. I'll just be honest. Like, you're just... That's the best you're going to do? Pissed? I, uh, <laughs> this is... We can... We can bleep you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Other, than, I, look, I was, I was beyond. I, that was one. It was hard. It was. I was. It was like, you, you, you know, this is a company town. You don't shelter your kids from everything. But yeah. you know, I've got a, I've got a teenager now, and somebody who's a, who's a tweener. Um, Me too. Right, which just means a lot of Fortnite. That's what you discover, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that was. The funniest response I got was actually from my mother, who said, you know, he kind of owes me an apology. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, you know, what more could I say? <laughs> You're right, Mom. You know, um, it, it's funny. It's like the, the answer is, oh, it rolls off the back. Like when you get attacked, it rolls off the back. That's yeah. what you're, we're all taught to do, whether you're in public service or I'm in the press you let the criticism, you roll up your back, never let them see you sweat, all of those things. But what he has done, it's, I don't, it doesn't bother me. He views the press, I've always said that he views this all as the way wrestling works, okay? And that, and he is a creature of wrestling. First WrestleManias were at Trump hotels. I mean this, I think it's actually a very important understanding of who he is and his appeal. But I think he... He sees it as more of a game, and he even, he'll even say, I'm good for your ratings, aren't I? Isn't this good for you? It's all fun and games until the death threats come. And I would say the last six to eight months is when you realize the name-calling that he's been doing, while it felt light and fun for a while, the pounding of it, the pounding of it, the pounding of it has had an impact on his crazies. 95% of his bases are no more than normal Americans and the rest of us. But there is this demon that he unleashed of angry loners who have used whatever it is, maybe white nationalism makes them feel like they belong, yeah. maybe some other anti-Semitism makes them feel like they belong. And that is what now a bunch of us are dealing with. And that's, the pipe bomb was just sort of the most yeah. out symbolic way that a lot of people saw it. And this is the conversation, and, and a bunch of us have had this conversation with him. Like, we know you don't mean it as badly as others take it. I've said this. I know he doesn't, he wants it to be banter. But this has had an impact on people, and they have taken matters into their own hands. Yeah, Your course. words matter, and he just will not accept that reality. That's why you talk differently sometimes in international settings because you don't know if somebody's going to take what you say the wrong way and start World War III. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't just apply to this. It applies to actually when you're on the world stage. So let's talk about your reaction. So this happens to you. Your daughter tells you. He's, he's cussing at you, and you're just doing your job. And your policy has been, which is not everyone's policy, mm -hmm. not to respond in kind. Yeah. Like, are you... Are you like the Gandhi of no? The look, press? I did it my own way. I think I did a lighthearted subtweet or retweet that just said, "I look forward to being wide awake on Sunday, you know, at nine a.m. Right. See you at nine a.m. or Sunday or something like that." And then I did have a Trump administration guest on, 
and it was interesting. They were very concerned. They knew, they knew what had happened. I mean, it, you know, it was funny. It was like this one got a lot more traction because he called me an SOB. It wasn't the sleepy eyes. It was that he went yeah. to it. He went harsher. And I was like, my God, what has he done? And I'm not a day-to-day reporter covering him the way, you know, so it made it even more weird. Like, why is he, you know, coming extra? So the administration guests, I, you know, you guys can figure out who it was on, but I don't, I don't want to make it easy for everybody. Their person just went, went to my producer, just so you know, you know, the secretary really, really respects Chuck. You know, like just nervous about how I was going to ask him the questions. And so what I decided to do was ask him about comments the president made the night before in the same speech, but not about me, but about what he said about Maxine Waters. And I made it about her. Mm -hmm. And I say, why does he call her low IQ? And I just decided, it's like, look, I don't normally, you know, you sort of pick and choose how often do you decide to make a Trump administration official have to respond to something the president said. At a rally. And, yeah. and we have this debate a lot in our newsroom. How often do you feel like, should they, be, should they have to answer for his? Um, and I decided, well, Maxine Waters is on the Financial Services Committee. You know, I found a committee that was connected to the person. I thought that's at least relevant to how that person has to do their job. So I chose to aggressively question this person on other stuff he said and just kept me out of it. But you were thinking about yourself still. Of course I was. I can't, I'm not, I, I'm not, no, 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 I fully admit, I was angry, and I was, I was like, I was in one of those, you know, and, but I try, I, Do you turn into the Hulk? No, I just was like. <laughs> Did you I, see that? It no, was like, I don't. That's like I, the beginning of the Hulk But it is sort of like, I, like when I'm, and it's the only time that I was like visibly, and I was both nervous and upset and figuring out, all right, I don't want to lose my cool, but I really want to make him feel uncomfortable. I, I did. I was like, this one, that one went too far, and I want right. them to feel the pain. Sadly, this person's never been on again. <laughs> and but, but doesn't that put you in an odd spot? It does. In, this, in the following sense, though, that you try to be objective, you try to be neutral, you call them like you see them, you take a lot of pains not to give away, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, who you vote for and everything else. When the president calls you an SOB, and then let's say maybe a couple of days later you say something critical of a policy... Right. or a practice or a statement, he sort of bought himself the, the ability to say, well, he's just mad. Yeah. He doesn't like me because I tweaked him on Twitter. How do you deal with his forcing you to look like perhaps you're not objective this because is, he's maligned you? This is the trap that he set for all of us. And I always say, I know the trap. Yeah. I know we've, he set the trap, which is, you remember what was the, the Steve Bannon line very early, the, you know, the media is the opposition party. So you're in this position. If you don't respond, then his false accusations go unanswered. And if you do respond, then you're acting as if you're the opposition, right? So it is a trap. It's checkmate. Well, this is where I just feel as if, and I would say it was about a year ago, and, and my staff can tell you this, where I sort of got this philosophy it was somebody else's advice, and I can't remember where I read it, but I thought, you know what? That's the right answer. Just say what you see, period. And I just view this, my job is this. I'm going to say what I see, what's, what he's doing, why he's doing it, give context, why is he attacking the press, why is he, and explain he's setting a trap here, he's making it, he's attacking us in the press so that if we criticize, explain it to viewers, be fully transparent, so say what you, know, say what you see, and also, I don't care if people don't like me. 
as much as that, you know, on one hand you're saying, oh, you're human beings, of course you do. But as, the, as journalist Chuck Todd, host of Meet the Press, if I, I'm not, it's not a popularity contest, right? We have to realize as journalists, you know, we, if, you're, if your real goal in life is to call them like you see them, then you're probably going to piss people off a lot. Yeah. So embrace it. Um, I've, done, I've done little things to sort of realize that that's the case. Okay, I've retreated a bit from social media. I still do it, but I'm not... I, I don't socialize in official Washington the way I think we used to. Look, I think one of the fairest criticisms of the press in general, and I think what made it easy to bash us, is that we did give the appearance of being a little too chummy with the powerful. And I think one of the ways to make the 2016 election as consequential um, for our future in ways that we haven't thought about is, number one, embrace the fact that, hey, is there anybody been better for civic engagement than Donald Trump in the last 30 years? I mean, that turnout, the turnout's been unbelievable. The, the voter turnout was unbelievable. But so, that's a little bit like saying, has there anyone that's been better for doctors recently than cancer? disease? Yeah, exactly, I know. <laughs> Where would the CDC be I without mean, disease? Boy. You know? um, but I can tell but you I this. You. I think a lot of people have decided to look at their place in all of this and say, okay, what have I done? What do I think I've done well? And what can I do better? And so in that sense, I feel like at the end of the day, let's inward look a little bit as the press and everybody else can do their own inward looking. And, and those are the conclusions I came to, which is stop worrying about what people think of you. It, you know, you know in, in a polarized environment, you know, if you really think you're going to be an umpire and a, and a successful referee in this business, then, you know, say what you see. So let's talk about a particular case of someone who has angered people, including the president. Someone who had your job, who has the job he used to have yeah. for CNN, where mm -hmm. I'm, I should say, where I'm a, a contributor, Jim Acosta, mm -hmm. whose title is what? Senior White House? I don't know if he's senior or chief. I don't, I don't know chief what the CNN House, naming like constructions are, but I think uh, it's... And he had his press credentials withdrawn. Mm -hmm. So CNN has filed a lawsuit uh, over the uh, revocation of the White House press credential on the part of Jim Acosta. And lots of other news organizations, including Fox News and others. Uh, NBC as well. We've NBC all as well, right? Amicus a, a whole bunch of news organizations who are otherwise competitive with CNN have said they're going to file, you know, Amicus briefs, mm -hmm. Friends of the Court briefs, which is interesting to me. It makes me think of, you know, the sort of political parallel, which you don't see a lot of, but that I enjoy seeing. And I like to talk about these issues on the podcast where Democrats and Republicans, they fight. They have different views about politics tax policy and everything else, but you're seeing a group of people, whether it's Max Boot, sometimes Jeff Flake, uh, Steve Schmidt, and others who say, you know what, there are things, you know, we compete and we have different ideological views, sure. but there's some, there's, there's some things that are more important than party and ideology, like decency, like free press, like independence of law enforcement, etc. And I wonder, you could clap for that, and, and I wonder if there's a little bit of that but I guess it's just depressing that you have to you be have to like, clap that people that, have yeah. to clap for like fair law enforcement. You're like, <laughs> used to be a given anyway. It's like so truth. Like, yes. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Truth is truth. Yes. Um, truth isn't truth, Preet. Sorry. But, but so you, so, you, so yeah, we're going to get to that too. Yeah. So you have, you guys compete, you know, mm -hmm. people on your network, people on CNN, the network sure. of CNN, they criticize each other on Fox. 
They belittle each other. And on this thing with Jim Acosta, they're in agreement. Some things are more important than ratings and competition. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, it would have been hypocritical if Fox hadn't signed on. And I'll tell you why. Because I was in the Obama administration when I remember one time when they did a pooled event and tried to keep Fox out of it at Treasury. And basically the rest of us said it's a pooled event. There are five members of the pool, television pool. You know, in this case, this is how it works. It's one for all for one. So basically, we refused to do the interviews with the Treasury people unless Fox also could do it. So there's history here. We have, in some ways, it would have been hypocritical had they not. And, and that is why I think every news organization looks at this. You can, as you said, you can disagree with how they've handled certain things or how they choose to go about their business as a network, whether it's Fox, whether it's CNN, whether it's MSNBC, ABC, CBS, right? But the fact of the matter is, if they can do it to him, they can do it to you. And if this administration does it to that network, a new administration could do it to that network. And, and that, as you said, we're, we're sitting here frustrated that Donald Trump never thinks long-term. To Fox's credit, and frankly, I think every news organization's credit, they're thinking long-term. You know, Trump probably will only serve four, maybe five terms. So <laughs> at some point... Um, no, I always joke. I'm like, you know, we're going to wake up in 2032. How did he get a fourth term? Um, but, you know, these are some principles. Yeah. And frankly, it's worth defining. I'm very curious to see what this guy's going to do, the judge, because there is a technical way he may try to split this decision where the government, where, where the government can have control over the hard pass but can't control who a news organization sends in. That's my whole personal speculation as yeah. to the delay. Um, is what this judge is trying to find a way to throw bone at the, at the White House. But it's, to me, it's interesting, and I haven't studied it closely, and I should be careful about how, what I, how I comment on it since I'm... I was just going to say, I thought, boy, I'm, if Preet I'm asked a, me about this... I'm a contributor. I only play a lawyer on TV. You are a lawyer on TV. On TV. <laughs> um, if Donald Trump could figure out a way to save face and just make it go away in a way that looks magnanimous but also like he's winning... You kind of don't want this to come to its conclusion. Oh, I agree. Right? Oh, you don't want it to come to a conclusion. The lawsuit is the win. This yeah. goes back to what I said earlier. It doesn't matter if we technically win as the press in this case. His people love the fact, man, you really took it to them. You had to make them go to court to come cover you. Good for you. Rather than you want to say to this person, wait a minute, okay, you like this president. What if Fox were prevented from covering Obama? How would you have felt about this? Like, that's the conversation I want to have with the rank-and-file Trump voter, which is you're cheering this. You do understand if President Elizabeth Warren kicks Fox out, you know. That was an interesting reaction. I always say, all right, let me try another one. If President Steve Bullock, anything, anything? I'm just, I'm just trying different ones. If President Andrew Gillum... All right. I got more. Wow, how about that? See, you're better off losing than winning sometimes. Beto O'Rourke, you know. <laughs> I knew. That was an easy one. I knew, I Gary it. Hart. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, that's the logical conversation you want to have. But again, it goes back to if Trump's fighting with the press then his people aren't reading about the Mueller probe. Yeah. If Trump's fighting with the press, his people aren't reading about the fact that we are in a, a trade war with China and China may not blink. If, you know, I mean, the point is, is that I, I feel like these fights, he, he does them, it's, it's just distractions. And we know it, 
but yet we have to fight it on principle. Like it, this is the frustrating Look, it, it's part. It's a huge critique of the press. On the one hand, people say, well, the president kept talking about the caravan, which was BS, and they were thousands of miles away, and you know, he, he massed troops on the border. But there's a, not an unreasonable critique that not just after the election, the president stopped talking about it, but the press did too. What is the obligation of the press to sometimes not say what comes out of the president's mouth? And I think there's a reasonable I argument I, that it's pre... You are getting... Again... I will note, the most sustained applause of the evening. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> and as my, my staff could vouch for me, we have this debate every day. And who oh, wins? the tweets. Here's where I fall back on. Who am I to decide when to take the president seriously or not? Yeah. And I say this because when one of the great examples was, remember when Trump said, well, you know, Obama's the founder of ISIS. Right. And we said, well, he, Hugh Hewitt, by the way, had him on his radio show as a candidate. And, and Hugh Hewitt says, well, you don't mean the actual founder. And he said, no, 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 I mean it that way. I mean, it, yeah. he did it. So here was a moment where we in the press said, well, that's not a, he's not a serious accusation. And Trump said, no, 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 I mean it. So I go back to when are we supposed to, dis is it up to me to crawl in his head to know it's a facetious line. For instance, the, the, whole, the whole Colin Kaepernick controversy. You know why that became an issue for Trump? Because he was at a rally in Alabama that was going south, campaigning for Luther Strange at the time, who was a dead man walking in the Republican primary. And Trump's greatest gift as a candidate is he knows how to read a room. I promise you, if he were in this room, he'd find a way to entertain you guys. He just would. He but has it's raining. Ability. It is raining. He might not get here. So he's not yeah. here. <laughs> the safest place from Trump is in a rainstorm. Um, it's like if we could just have, in, like, for I a brief you, period of time, yeah. extreme if, if it, weather all across the United States, maybe he would go somewhere. Uh, only if it freezes over. Um, <laughs> But, so, but can, can I ask this question? Yeah. It's really the case that there is a certain level of equality in the world. Even if you're a governor or a senator, and there's no one above the law, we say, and this is a terrible conclusion that I've come to. And as a prosecutor, for example, people have attacked the prosecutor. I got attacked all the time. And some people had a bigger megaphone than other people. And they'd say, well, you're going after me because I'm a Republican or because I'm from this ethnic background or because I'm Russian or whatever. And it's difficult and they have some platform, but they're not the president. Yeah. There's something, the president is different I agree. from every other human being, not just in America, but in the world. And the president's megaphone is just a different order, right? And so it's another example of checkmate, it seems to me. So you have an obligation as an, as an officer, I'll say, of the press, mm -hmm. Because the leader of the free world, such as it is, says X or Y. And so that principle that you recite seems perfectly appropriate and just and right and righteous. And it also seems okay to say about some lesser mortal, you know what? We're not going to talk about that guy, um, Alex Jones or right. whoever else, who is spouting filth. 
The conundrum is it's the president and we elected him and how do you deal with it? And we've never seen anything like it. And it seems to me that the models that we've created over time that are sort of, sort of storied and that we, that we laud mm -hmm. and that we revere in some ways are not up to the task of it. So what do you do? I, look, the history of Trump is that he eventually wears out an audience and he finds a new one. Now the problem now is just he's found his biggest audience he's ever had, right? Where if you look at his days at the USFL, if you look at his days in Atlantic City, if you look at his days as a real estate developer in Manhattan, if you look at his days as an apprentice, you know, in each case they had lifespans, right? Big openings, disastrous closings, right? The USFL, Atlantic City, The Apprentice eventually gets canceled, right? All of those things. So the history of him is that he eventually sort of punches himself out. Um, this is the largest audience he's ever had. So, like I said, it may take his fourth term before the, 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 the country totally is worn out on his shtick. I do think we need to do a better, like I said, we need to do a better job of putting all of it in context. So if he's doing it, explain why he's doing it. There's a why behind it. So today, for instance, he went off on the Mueller probe. It was sort of a greatest Multiple hit. times. Yeah, but it was, what was interesting about it is it was nothing new. It was literally, he took 18 months of Mueller criticisms and compacted them into 24 hours. Right, right. It was the greatest hits, like even Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, and you're like, I hadn't even heard those names since August, you know? Right. Huh, oh, Mueller's quiet period is over. Oh, never mind, we've all been on pins and needles checking the courthouse every day this week, knowing that what indictment is coming, what indictment is coming, and you're like, oh my God, look, the president said, one thing about President Trump, I'd love to play poker with him, because I think he's a terrible poker player. <laughs> that dude's got some tells that's, that that's are, true. I mean, and this one felt like a tell. So today, we took all his tweets, he clearly is nervous, something is coming, right? And we know he's been in the middle of answering the written portion of the Mueller interview, so he's angry. So in that case, I think that's, the right, that's how I've chosen to deal with it. I don't know if it's right or wrong. One thing I'll say about covering Trump, I went on NBC when we covered the Iraq war, but I accept the idea that I'm a member of the National Press Corps, and so I own that too. Okay, I, was, I, I wasn't covering Iraq, but I say this in that my industry failed the country in Iraq. Yeah. Okay, we did. Um, Generally, okay, so, and I think in the moment, and that, this is a case I go back to, we worry too much about being popular. I think in the Iraq war, we were worried, you know, it had become so wrapped up in patriotism and wrapped up in their national identity that there were too many journalists in the national stage that, that and, and the embedding with troops turned out to be a mistake, and there's just all sorts of reasons why that went. I, I basically say this about the Trump era. I don't know if we're doing it right. We're going to know in five years whether we did it right. And I don't want this to be my Iraq war. And I don't want this to be my generation's version of this. And I know if we blow this one, our industry's in deep trouble. Yeah. So I don't know if we're getting it right with Trump. We're going to know in about five or six years. We'll know better in 10 years, perhaps. But I do view it that way. It's like, don't worry about being judged today or tomorrow about how you're covering Trump, whether it's fair or not fair worry about what this looks like in 10 years. So I do think about that. I think every interview I do with a Trump person in particular, I'm like, will this age well? I think, because if you think in those terms, I think 
you'll ask smarter questions and we might get better information out of them. Congress. So the, the Democrats have the House. Give me your you clap for that. <laughs> is, is it possible that the president changes his tack with Congress and decides maybe we'll do something on health care, maybe we'll do something on criminal justice reform, maybe we'll do something on infrastructure, and he pivots, or is he incapable of pivoting? I don't know. I, there was part, I actually thought, I thought the most interesting aspect of a Trump presidency was his lack of ideology. Like, we've always wondered, what would happen if he had a non-ideological president? He has no ideology, right? I, was, I mean, he, he doesn't. This is why you have small government conservatives who are feeling as if, oh my God, the ideology's dead, right? There is no small secret, you know, Trump doesn't believe in a small government, he believes in strong government. Frankly, that is, that is in some ways, the worst thing you could be to a, to a real small government conservative. Logically, that makes sense. I, you know, for the life of me, I don't understand why he didn't, the first thing he didn't do was infrastructure. Because that was the easy bipartisan win. The successful presidencies start with something easy to get the big bipartisan win. Obama thought stimulus would be easy. It turned out the Republican Party decided to make it harder for him. But in general, the principle was, well, spending money, usually everybody's for that. Um, you mean George W. Bush did a, did a bipartisan deal with, on education early on with right. Ted Kennedy. It was, he was worried about a divisive... He knew that he got elected in a divisive election, and he was trying to bridge a divide early. Right. This president started with a travel ban. Right. No, no, he went right to, he went right to divide. But yeah. that is something I think that we have to... So the logical thing for him to do would be to pivot, cut some deals with Pelosi. Everybody, you can ask congressional Republicans that were there in the 90s with Bill Clinton, their frustration that they do all these bipartisan deals and only Bill Clinton got the credit. Yeah. Presidents get all the credit and Congress never gets any of it on those bipartisan deals. So they're, it's actually easy... This would be, should be actually a layup for Trump. Infrastructure, done. But I think he's so determined in his base, they are not as interested in results as they're in, in the fight. It goes back to the fight. Yeah. Everything is about the fight. And I think he believes that the only reason he made the, that these midterms weren't a total disaster is that he got his people out due to, due to the fight. Look, he, Paul Ryan is telling him, no, close with the economy. And he's going... Which, by the way, Trump was right and Ryan was wrong. Had they closed with the economy, his people wouldn't have come out. Yes. Closing with the caravan and scaring the living daylights out of people was actually the right turnout call. Terrible for the country uh, as far as like creating, creating literally a, myth, a mythology. Yeah, Trump about, said it's, the economy is kind of boring. He said it was kind of boring. So I don't think he's going to do these deals. Even though, yes... This should be easy. Literally, it's the Bill Clinton playbook. Cut a bunch of deals with Newt Gingrich, then make Newt Gingrich the boogeyman in 1996. Right. So That's how Bill Clinton won re-election. He yeah. cut a bunch of deals, signed them, and ran against that horrible Newt Gingrich in the presidential race, even though Bob Dole was his opponent. You look at every attack ad in the 96 race, and it was Bob Dole and Newt Gingrich. So the playbook is actually quite easy. If Trump chose to do a conventional political playbook cut a bunch of deals with Pelosi and make her the boogeywoman and make Pelosi be the running mate for whoever the Democrats nominate, right. which he may still try to do. But if he is the stumbling block, and look, and here's the irony, Democrats actually need him to work. They, 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 they have to at least get caught trying to work with Trump. 
That's the irony. You have to get caught. Get caught trying. Doesn't mean you have to do a deal. Look like you're trying to do a deal. Democrats have too many people that they've pro- they won middle of the road voters. They won a slice of voters who may have voted for Trump in 16, who don't like his temperament, but would like to see some bipartisanship. So I do think Democrats are incentivized more to try to find some common ground with him. Infrastructure is the easiest one to do. Maybe even the pre-existing doing some tinkers to Obamacare. So Democrats have to do that, I think, for their own political issues. But I don't know if Trump's going to act conventionally on this or not. Yeah. So to and, me, the- and by the way, he might get a primary challenge or two or three, which then will, of course, drive him further to the base. Who are the three? Oh, I think John Kasich. I think Ben Sass. I think Jeff Flake. I think they're all interested in doing it, and I thought they'll all get crushed. Because who's, his- the, who's the most viable of those three? Kasich? No. You can't run to the left. Sass is the only one that seems to have a following in... There's a... Among Sass, conservatives. Sass, yeah. yeah. Conservatives who are appalled by Trump, Sass is their number one person. Um, Does Jeff Flake have any constituency in the conservative movement? No. Yeah. None. Sass might have a little, but even that... Look, I, Trump has transformed the party. Again, he's redefined what's conservative. Conservative right now is whatever Trump says it is. Yeah. Um, what I thought the definition of conservative, and frankly what Paul Ryan thought the definition of conservative was, turned out just that isn't what that base was that interested in. I'm sorry, who? Yeah. There was this guy, he's, um, he was a rising star in Wisconsin, <laughs> and he actually became Speaker of the House. Um, is there a greater non-entity in Republican politics at the moment than Paul Ryan? <sighs> You know, I, I, I literally feel like I grew up professionally with Paul Ryan. I remember when he got elected to Congress, he was like a staffer at Empower America. I was working at a thing called the Hotline we were back in the, in the mid-90s. And like Ryan was one of these, you, you, you thought, oh, this is a Jack Kemp acolyte. And I don't know, Speaker was the worst role for him. Yeah. I think he knew it. He was reluctant. What was, what was so interesting about it is it wasn't phony reluctance. He was reluctant because he knew he wouldn't, he didn't have, he didn't have the, he would say he didn't have the cynicism to do the job right. I don't think it's cynicism. He just didn't have that sharp edge of, a, of an insider Paul yeah. that you have to have if you're going to succeed in a job like that. Yeah. Nor does he seem to have backbone. Well, that's, <laughs> by the way, the, the two go hand in hand. I mean, you, you got to have one. You've got to have one of You've got to have backbone to be a successful They're leader. They're going to kick us Mitch out. Mitch McConnell yeah. has tremendous backbone. He does. You may not like right. what he stiffens his spine right. for. But as Obama once said... But that dude's got backbone. You have a drink with Mitch McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that. Let's do a very quick lightning round. Yeah. Um, ready? Go. Start with an easy one. Yes. What is the longest running show on television? Ah, yeah. Very nice. I love it. It is... Um, we like to say it's Meet the Press. Yes. It's the longest-running television show in the world. In the world? Nobody's proven to me different. <laughs> Nobody's yet come up with evidence. Nobody has proven that fact incorrect yet. There's not like a show in Myanmar? That, okay. Uh, would you consider a full beard? Oh, a thousand percent. I've... Uh, I've tr- <laughs> By the way, Mrs. Todd encourages it. She's put it on her Instagram a couple of times. You can see the full beard. Every winter... <laughs> Every winter it comes out. I just always worry I'm going to look like my rabbi. And, you know, it's, do, I and look like, not, do I look like your rabbi? You know what, actually? A little bit? A little bit, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, have you ever played uh, Devil's Triangle? <laughs> Every time I do that question, it never gets old for me. I, I am not a naive guy, and I was a house party guy in the late 80s, early 90s in Miami. I'd never heard of that one. <laughs> so so your, your official answer is no. My official answer is no. I've never heard of that one. That was new to me. Do you have a favorite Donald Trump lie? <laughs> that The Apprentice was number one. <laughs> will, will, will young people vote in the same numbers in 2020? Oh, yes. I think we're going to have a... Here's the thing. We have never had... We had this was our first 100 million midterm, voter midterm. We've never had 150 million um, general election. I think the highest is about 138 million. I think we're easily going to hit 150 million total voters. <laughs> Probably higher. Like I said, civic engagement... Now, I will quote something Andrew Sullivan wrote. You know, you're truly free when you're free to not care about politics. And he said, more people feel like they have to care about politics, so yeah. maybe we've lost a little bit of our freedom. A little freedom. bit of freedom, yeah. When it rains, do you still go to work? <laughs> yes. Yes. If you could have any... Because you've, you've talked about the revolving door, mm -hmm. and you've been critical of it, journalism, politics, government. If you could have any job in government, what would it be? Oh, wow. There's, there's, there's a need for an AG. No, 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 I know that. I, you know, I, I, I guess I would say it would be mayor of Pensacola. I say that because I like, we, that's where my wife's from. Um, I think the best elected job in America is mayor. It's just mayor of any city or town because you, you truly can be a public servant. It's the, one of the few jobs that, you know, and, and every day you have your own poll to find out how you're doing. Right. Because people, <laughs> people let you know how you're doing. It, it would be the only elected job I would feel compelled to, to attempt and, and feel as if it wouldn't be violating my revolving door issue, for what it's worth. Can Beto O'Rourke run in 2020 and win the presidency? No. Well, the only other, there's one other person that pulled it off, so, you know, him and Abe Lincoln, so why not, right? You know, Abe Lincoln lost a Senate race and won a presidency, so if you think that Ted Cruz is Douglas and Beto O'Rourke is Lincoln, then, you know, and Ted Cruz fashions himself as a Lincoln-Douglas-like debater. Um, look, I was a big skeptic of Beto. Um, just, you know, I can do it my way. I'm smarter than everybody else. Well, he almost was. He did a lot better. I, you know, I always say one of the biggest problems in my business has been there, done that disease. Um, so you got to be careful of it. Yeah. And, you know, just because what used to happen in Texas yesterday doesn't mean it's what happens in Texas tomorrow. But look, I joked about the Beto thing, right? And you heard these cheers. Phoenix, Arizona. I'd see more Beto O'Rourke shirts than Kirsten Sinema. Uh, Tampa, Florida. Beto O'Rourke t-shirts. He tapped into something. I, I think that I wouldn't Look, rule it out. I in think 2006... I think he should. I think it's real. In 2006, people laughed at Obama. People forget that now, but they did. They laughed at the prospect that he would run. They weren't laughing, but people thought, oh, it's too soon. That's what a lot of smart... And here's the lesson of Obama. Uh, frankly, it's the lesson of everybody that never ran in 1992 who all said, no, 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 we'll let that... We'll let that hick from yeah. Arkansas run. Or Chris Christie and, 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 in 2012. And in 1996, we'll run for the open presidency, which is every nomination's worth having, and when it's your time, it's your time. Yeah. Don't wait your turn. Take your turn. Yeah.
Chuck Todd, you were very generous with your time. Oh. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Everyone tune in every Sunday. That's right, Sunday. And then every day at 5 p.m. Yes, sir. What Round of mean? applause for Chuck Todd. Yeah. <laughs> so I always end the show talking about something in the news. You know that I spent a lot of time talking about Bill Browder and the Magnitsky Act and his mm -hmm. fight on behalf of his lawyer, who was his Russian lawyer, who bravely challenged the corrupt Putin regime, and his thanks was being brutally killed on the floor of a prison in Russia. You may not realize this, but tomorrow is the ninth anniversary oh, wow. of Sergei Magnitsky's murder at the hands of Russian government officials, which is terrible and sad and tragic. But the good news is that through the good works of Bill Browder and others, his namesake legislation continues to be passed around the globe, thanks to Browder's you know, tirelessness, with the goal of punishing those oligarchs in Russia and others who violate human rights. And the other thing that has happened recently is the eerie and horrifying echo of Sergei Magnitsky's murder in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, which I've talked about a lot on the show too. And so it's heartening despite these tragedies and in the shadow of these tragedies that the Magnitsky Act is being used in some ways to remedy or to respond to the death of Khashoggi as well. And so just in the last couple of days, the Magnitsky Act has been used by the US to sanction the 17 people who allegedly participated in a corrupt violent scheme to murder that Washington Post journalist. So putting aside the fact that we don't know everything there is to know, we want to get to the bottom of it with respect to leadership in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But the good news is that hope comes in the form of journalists like Khashoggi and others looking for truth. It comes in the form of activists like Bill Browder fighting for accountability. It comes in the form of public officials who try to ensure that bad actors do not go unpunished. So there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in the world and we have to deal with that and we have to address it and we have to acknowledge it and we have to mourn it. But at the same time, when those things happen, we have to applaud and be inspired by the good people who try to make something better come out of it. So I hope you all take that message to heart. I hope you all continue to vote. Thanks for coming out. Thanks, folks. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Chuck Todd, and the audience at the Lincoln Theater in Washington, D.C. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.